Hi, I'm Justin Sales. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com, and you're listening to Pada Bing. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Today, we're discussing, analyzing, scrutinizing, and obsessing over Season 5, Episode 2's Rat Pack. Joining me in studio today is Justin Sales from The Ringer. Justin wrote a great piece about Sopranos culture in the present day. You can check it out at theringer.com, along with all the other great stuff that they crank out. Just continuously cranking out stuff. It's a lot of cranking. Can't keep up. It's, there's, just, the internet needs more content, and we're here to do the content. And you are supplying it at like fire hose rates. Justin, friend of the pod, friend of mine, thanks for being here and doing this, man. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Are you ready to get acute with The Sopranos and this episode in particular? I've been ready to get acute with The Sopranos for my entire life, so this episode seems like a great place to start. Let's do it. I know we had talked about you coming on for Irregular Around the Margins, and you were kind enough to help me with this one because a couple of things fell through. So if nothing else, this will get your wheels greased for what this is all about and how obsessive or, or maybe maybe this will be so excruciatingly bad that you'll never ever talk to me again after this but I'm hoping it's not but this it, it could go one of two ways I, I, I can't imagine that okay. talking about the Sopranos can be that bad okay the title Rat Pack an episode where a rat gets packed in a trunk but also the name of a group of entertainers in the 1960s consisting chiefly of chairman of the board Frank Sinatra Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. The term is largely credited to Lauren Bacall, who makes a future cameo in The Sopranos. Crazy how that comes full circle. Didn't realize that. Uh, Also, note how we're introduced to all the rats in the show right out of the gate. Nice symmetry. Right. So this episode was written by Matthew Weiner and directed by Alan Taylor. Originally aired March 14th, 2004. Do you remember what was going on in your life in... 2004, Justin? Oh my god, how old am I going to sound? How old are the listeners? Uh, Listeners run the gamut. I was getting ready to graduate college. I probably had my parents recorded on VHS, and then I probably watched it like the next day. The only episode that I remember watching live that season was uh, Long Term Parking. Everybody remembers that. Yeah, it's impossible to not remember where you were. But that's the only episode I remember actually watching live that season. I remember who I watched that episode with. I remember who was in the room. I remember the reactions of the people. Not this one in particular, but long-term parking. Okay. Also, Steve Buscemi. By the way, it's pronounced Buscemi, but Buscemi in the motherland. Did you know that? I had no idea. He apparently pronounced his own name wrong until he went to Sicily to find out that it was actually pronounced Buscemi. But the anglicized version is Buscemi. That's funny. That reminds me of the kicker of the Seahawks a couple years back, Stephen Hauschka. His name got misspelled somewhere, and he just never corrected anyone. And he just went his whole life and his whole professional career with his name spelled incorrectly. Sounds like uh, Phil Leotardo. Phil was a little less happy about that, but... I wonder if there are scraps in Stephen Hauschka's scrapbook. (laughs) This is part of it. It's like just really bad Sopranos jokes that only all the listeners are going to get. But okay. Of course, Steve Buscemi is a new addition to the show. It's fair to say, Justin, Steve's had an iconic career, and the lore is that his work on the film 
Trees Lounge is what got David Chase's attention. Okay. Have you seen that movie? I have not. Have you? I watched it because of this project. Okay. I was not aware of it prior to, though. And what was it like? I can see the attraction that David Chase had as far as the casting. Okay. The casting was, there was an alchemy that you only get if you have the script and you have the right people saying the words in a room together. So that inspiration for The Sopranos, apparently the people that cast Trees Lounge also cast The Sopranos. He okay. hired the same casting people. So, And of course, uh, Buscemi, which I'm going to have a lot of fun saying now. Yeah. I'm definitely going to do that right every time. He goes by Buscemi, so I feel like it's fair to him to call him okay. Buscemi. Well, he had a history with The Sopranos before this episode, before yeah. this season. Um, he, of course, directed the most famous episode in the history of the show. But not your most favorite, right? I love the episode. I'm talking to somebody who's recently watching the show for the first time, and they got to that episode, and when they told me, like, they're like, yeah, I thought it was good. I'm like, but that was it? That you just thought it was good? And then they said, is that your favorite episode? I'm like, well, well, no, no. But Pine Barrens is a thing. It's its own special thing. And I just was shocked by the reaction. It's definitely the most quotable, and it's definitely the most legendary but I, like you, am equally shocked when someone doesn't share the same enthusiasm. When I try to, like, say, wasn't that the most hilarious line ever? So for Pine Barrens, for example, to me, it is off-the-chair laughter when Christopher, and I'll cut away to the audio of this. Every chance I get, I cut away to the audio of... I'll leave you here, you want you cocksucker! Put it down, Chrissy. You know how fast I can run, I'll leave you in the fucking dust! I'll leave you in the dust, you one-shoe cocksucker. <laughs> like, anybody that doesn't laugh the moment I say that, it's like, we're not, we're yeah. not, no, we're just not. Because it's the delivery, and I even told Michael that when I met him, I said, that is like one of the funniest things ever. When you look at it on a page, it just says, I'll leave you in the dust, you one-shoe cocksucker. But the way you said it is so animated. It's like a caricature. Yeah, it's perfect. Interesting thing I learned in an interview, uh, David Chase interview, no less, He was too shy to ask Buscemi to be a part of the show because he said he was a feature film actor and too big for The Sopranos. All right. It's believable. It's believable. Believable. But the other side of it was that Buscemi says it was beyond television. We weren't talking about television with The Sopranos, so he was happy to do it. Right. He just couldn't get scheduled sooner. They wanted him to be a part of it earlier in the process. Okay. They were circling each other for a lot of years, and then finally in season five, he's like, I'd be honored. Was he always pegged for this kind of role? Was there anything else that he was considered for? Was it just, like, something that was just out there that just never came to fruition until now? I think they wrote this for him. Okay. They always knew they wanted him in some capacity, but they didn't know what it would look like. Okay. So they got him All right. to direct. And then, you know, the relationship formed. But Tony B, Tony Blendetto, I think it's safe to say it was specific to okay. Buscemi. Interesting thing about Buscemi, he's been in every Adam Sandler movie. Every single one. Most of them. I looked at the filmography, and I was surprised not to see him in Uncut Gems. Yeah. Well, that's not really like an Adam Sandler movie. Like, it's a movie that Adam Sandler's in, right? It's like, there's a specific, like, that whole Happy Madison, those types of Adam Sandler films. Like, those are Adam Sandler movies. And I'm not trying to make, like, too much of a distinction. I'm not trying to to disparage the Sandman here, right? But Uncut Gems was a specific thing that, you know, Adam Sandler was fit into. 
I just, when I watched it, the first thing I was actually looking for, because I'm always aware that they're like a tandem duo to yeah. some extent. There might be one or two movies that they haven't been in together, but I was just expecting Buscemi to walk through the... Have you seen the movie? I have, yeah. So I was expecting him to walk into the shop and like have like an in- encounter yeah. with like Kevin Garnett or something, but I was like, yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah. I noticed that it didn't happen, and so that's why I brought it up here. Shout out to Uncut Gems. The Oscar nominations came out today, and Sandler did not even get nominated. Nothing. Nothing from Uncut Gems. Um, I think it's... Or... I was a little surprised. I'm surprised that I got nothing. Like at least the score... Scored in so nothing, nothing, not one nomination, not a single nomination. Wow, yeah, politics, man. It was a tough movie year. It's a lot of good movies out this year. So, I mean, there were a lot of disappointments. Yeah. in the nominations, it became a thing. There was a little bit of a groundswell around Christmas time that he might get nominated. And yeah, he didn't even get nominated. Well, it also happened with uh, J Lo. Yeah, she had, she had all the hype for Hustler earlier in the year. Happened. Nothing. Uh, Buscemi, talking about awards, Buscemi was nominated for an Emmy for his work on The Sopranos. Okay. He did a wonderful web series too, by the way, a few years ago called Park Bench. It was such a fun concept. It pokes fun at itself. I watched the first three episodes a couple of days ago in anticipation of this. Good stuff. It just died on the vine. Yeah. It was an AOL original back when AOL did originals. Okay. We open on Rain. It's very ominous and distant. It's dark. You can hear the squeaking of a car brake. And if you've seen Mad Men, which I think you have, I hope you have. I've seen most of Mad Men. (laughs) I have to finish Mad Men. Yeah, if you've seen Mad Men and know that you know this inside out, this is that kind of vibe. I wondered if the pilot for that show was in the works at this point. I checked. A draft was out there in 2000. Isn't that how Weiner got David Chase's attention? He read the... He got the script to David Chase, and David Chase said, put that in a drawer, come work for me. Yeah. One of those cool, yeah. amazing fucking Hollywood stories. Right. Uh, and so he did. But the tone and pace he used in that show was incorporated into this episode, and I'm sure the others, as we'll see. Anyway, there's a restaurant. One car pulls up behind and perpendicular to another one that just parked. Note the name of the restaurant, Justin, on the window awning, Napoleon's. Mm. Too perfect. This mm. just after the Piamai series right. of episodes, right? Uh, two unidentified people watch as a hooded man gets out of his car. And I don't know if you know this, but we don't spoil on the pod because there's people that are right. that, have, that are watching it for the first time. Right. So it's kind of a nuance that I decided in the very beginning. We're assuming that everybody's seen everything up till now, but nothing after. Okay. A hooded man gets out of the car and carries a package. Looks like a painting or something framed. Could it be Tony and Piomai, perhaps? Resuscitated. We see the man approach Tony who's sitting in the booth of a diner. Reason I brought that caveat up, Justin, just a moment ago. Tony's sitting in the booth in a diner. It's important to note. He looks up. I want to focus on the approach, though. It's ominous. There's a little bit of a camera shake. There's a different camera angle. I don't know if this is Weiner. I don't know if this is Alan Taylor. I'm just putting it on the table. Tony's in the left third of the screen, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the whole screen. Right. So it's interesting... If you fast forward to Made in America, I looked at this scene with that lens. Okay. Jack Mazarone turns out, is the guy of Mazarone construction fame. I think we were introduced to him back in season two. Season two. And he presents Tony with a picture of the Rat Pack. The actor, Justin, that plays Jack Mazarone is Robert Desiderio. Mm-hmm. And he's doing the pod later this week. That's great. Incidentally, he's married to Judith Light. Who's the boss? Oh, wow. Were you, who's the boss guy? I mean, I was like, I was a kid when it was on. Yeah, yeah me too. We're yeah. Like, so anyway, Angela Bauer. 
Yeah. Angela Bowers, his wife. One of my favorite sitcoms. Okay, so Jack, he's wearing a most hat. Museum of Science and Trucking. The hat sticks out like a sore thumb. We're supposed to notice it, but don't quite know why yet. Acronym aside, I wondered if there was any symbolism of the word most on his head. It just struck me. It's almost like a billboard on his head. What are we supposed to take from that? Right. I couldn't come up with anything, but I'm just laying it out there. If you or any of the listeners have any thoughts, please send them to us. Note, he's got his hands folded while Tony's are spread apart and closed-fisted. The contrast I saw there was a pious and peaceful man with a bare-knuckle brawler at a moment's notice. Nice juxtaposition. Subdued ever so gently by Tony's occasional stirring of his coffee. Also note in the lower third of the frame, as the two of them admire the print, there is some vignetting in the frame as if to suggest they're both being watched clandestinely, which of course... We know they're being monitored. But at this point, we don't know what the hell's going on. We don't know who those guys are outside. Right. We don't know why Mazarone is of interest to them. Those guys, huh? Mm. They had some time, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Love Tony's hand gesture to drive the point home. No pun intended. Right. How legendary of stick men those three were. And who was in the print? It was, was it Dean, it was Frank? Dean, Frank, and Sammy Davis Jr. Okay. And there were, I think, seven or eight total members of the organized Rat Pack. Right. Those three are by far the most famous. Right. And they used to hang out in the Holmby Hills here. They used to hang out at a place in Beverly Hills. And there was some other place on the East Coast. They're basically, they had three pads that were their de facto, uh, how do you say, hotels, if you will? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one way of saying it, yeah. <laughs> um, there's an urgency to Mazarone. He's on the edge of his seat. Mm-hmm. To me, that should have been enough to tip Tony, but for some reason it wasn't. He's usually playing chess at 100 miles an hour, but this episode, any thoughts or explanation or reaction to why he was a step behind? He was late. You know what I mean? Yeah. Later I, when Silvio's like, he's like, what am I, a mind reader? Well, I mean, Massarone isn't part of this world, right? He's on the periphery of it, but he's not like deeply embedded into this world. But he knows who the players are, which makes me like he's he's trying to get a Zellman deal. He knows who all the stakeholders are and he's angling. But again, we don't know what's we don't know why. We don't know if he's being coerced by the feds yet. But it just struck me as like Tony should have smelled him yeah. from a mile away. There was something about the way he was asking his questions, how he immediately jumped into asking about Zellman and, you know, using the phrase federal redevelopment. You know, just that phrase stuck out. And that's the way he said it is not really the way that somebody I feel like would approach that conversation. Right. There was just something like he was trying to to get something specific out of Tony. Mm -hmm. Um, Tony wasn't going to give it to him because Tony, even if his guards down a little bit, is smart enough to know for the most part what he shouldn't be saying. And if the environment is not sanctioned, you can believe he's not going to say anything. Right. So he diverted um, away from the questions. But. There was still something about the way he was asking the questions that should have tipped Tony off because it tipped me off. Or have Tony say something about it sooner. Right. He was preoccupied with his dessert maybe, but it was just something worth pointing out that usually you expect Tony to be like, look, if someone comes into his house and starts talking to him in his basement and asking questions, even in the comfort of his own house, he's immediately like, uh, you know, nice shirt. Yeah. He immediately goes someplace else. And he kind of did here, but he wasn't suspect. 
A note, though, on his gestures. The finger flutters, the playing with food, the shoulder shrugs, the way he bobs his head. I watched this portion of the episode without sound. My son was sleeping on me and I had Mm -hmm. no choice. But it was interesting what I took from it. I noticed that there's a subtlety and delicacy in what he's doing. You simply don't see this command and control or restraint on television. It's effortless. You feel like you could watch Tony in a booth talking to another guy for hours on end. Right. It's the gesticulations, it's the words, the mannerisms. It feels just like a comforting, homey feeling about it. And we get another bit of this with uh, Tony B, which we'll talk about in a moment. You a fan of diners? Being an East Coast guy? Yeah. Yeah. They don't have enough of them in L.A. There's a a lot in Jersey. A lot in Jersey. Diners are a big Jersey thing. Um, I have a friend from South Jersey. His name is Patrick Lowney. And he, when I first met him when I was in college, all he would talk about was the the diners in Jersey. So I became very familiar with the uh, diner culture. The culture. Yeah. The rail car ones in particular, too. There are a few in, those. There, there are a few in Providence where I'm from, yeah. yeah. Rail car ones yep. where you there, actually go in? Yep. There was a place in Bethesda, Maryland, where I lived and spent a year uh, called Tasty Diner. It's still there. It's still in business. I tag them every chance I get because I don't want the places like that to go away. Yeah. But it was one big rail car. Oh, wow. And it's just a special place. Uh, Mazarone says he's going to make a speech at the opening of most about the challenges of contemporary urban development. What were the challenges of contemporary urban development? I wondered then and now grab a coffee and slice a pie like Tony in this scene, hunker down and let's take a look. The number one issue then and still is especially in LA, which is actually, if you think about it, living here, this will make a lot of sense. The number one issue is still Adequate housing for the rising populations while balancing scarce and limited resources. What do rising populations do? Well, they result in increased rush hours, something that we know very well, increased traffic collisions, increased homelessness, and the response to all that, stay with me, has been mixed-use structures like the Esplanade Mm. to get people working and living in the same place. Do you live in a mixed-use building? I do not. Okay, nor do I. So who is this helping? I don't know. (laughs) I'm still commuting every day. All right, this isn't a mayoral political campaign, so enough with the debate talking points. Mazarone is inquiring about Zelman, we mentioned. A permit was pulled on a bus station that's going to be converted to mixed use. Got me curious about the etymology of the combination of words known as pulling a permit. You've heard that before, right? I have, yeah. I've done it myself, personally. Where did that expression come from? Turns out in the old days, a clerk had to literally pull the required forms from a file. Makes sense. The term simply transferred to the digital era, even though no physical pulling actually takes place. Unless, of course, you are pulling imaginary strings like Tony and company to move things along fast-tracked, but that's a whole other thing. Back on Mazarone, he wants the same arrangement the terms of which are unclear here. But Tony changes the subject. The first tell, Justin, that maybe he's somewhat... You know, so he knows... Apprehensive. Yeah, he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to talk this. People are listening. There's a hostess right there. Someone's listening. He won't talk business in unsanctioned environments, like we said, especially with needy, whiny people, the type of which Mazarone is proving himself to resemble. Gotta mention Tony in hats, of course. Tony tells Mazarone to take his hat off. What does that remind you That's of? That's a callback to, was it season one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember, Tony doesn't like it when patrons disrespect restaurants by wearing hats. He would hate me. 
what ate me. Put a hat on every day. Every day. I can't leave home without one. Did you see what Larry Davis said last week? No, tell me. He was on some sports talk radio show in New York. It's, it's fantastic. You have to find it. Okay. But he said he doesn't trust Adam Gase, the coach of the New York Jets, because he always wears a hat. And he said, what's a man that's always wearing a hat? He's got something to hide. That's what Larry David said. I've heard that a man that wears a beard always has something to hide. What does that say about us? So what does that say about us? That we have a beard? We have, we have like messy beards yeah. and hats. Basically, we're the bottom rung for Larry David. It's, uh, your heroes, never meet your heroes. They'll hate you. I don't know <laughs> if I can go on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can proceed. Fade the black on the podcast. We learn here, it doesn't matter how classy the joint is. If Tony's in it, no fucking hats. Mazarone explains it's because of Rogaine which was personally for me too close to home, (laughs) apparently for Weiner too, who also happens to not be endowed with copious locks of hair. Have you, Justin, ever dabbled with the Rogaine? No, I just shaved my head. Then Mazarone mentions his mother and alludes to her being in hell. Tony commiserates in splendid Tony fashion. You had one of those too, huh? Love that. Cut from difficult mothers to a police pulling up outside the two unidentified persons spying on Mazarone. We've put two and two together. Curiously, Justin, the cop questions them and then pulls away slowly but eyes their rear plate. Was that look a recognition that they were feds? I don't know. Did you ever make any reconciliation with that? Why does Not he until later in the episode. Okay. Back on Mazarone and Tony Soprano, Mazarone is digging his own grave further. He's diminishing a woman's birthing experience. Wild. Likening it to a Prostate exam. What happened in the in-between that that we cut away that led to him saying that? Isn't it amazing how a lot of Sopranos fans will always talk about this? Stuff happens in the show that we don't ever get to see sometimes. Yeah. And this is one of those moments where you miss that. Yeah. You know, we just we just know that Tony and, and Tony B have a 15-year relationship, but there's so much depth there, but we just never got it. Just like right. here, what the hell were they talking about? I've never had a prostate exam, by the way. Have you? No. Made me wonder what are some of the other things the birthing process is analogized for to people to understand and contextualize. One that I found pretty funny and certainly painful was it being analogized to getting kicked in the balls over and over again. Okay. Okay. That's For like 20 hours? Uh, yeah. Uh, I personally run afoul of comparing the birthing process to anything. I've tried, and my wife swiftly destroyed me. So, a lot of balls, this Mazarone guy. Tony digs it, though, and reassures his level of digging by admiring the Rat Pack, sharing the booth with him. Love Tony's hand gestures again. There's a freeze frame of him with his arms like this. It's like it's almost like a painting. And he does something magnificent. In the most pot bing sort of way, he likens the picture to modern art, mm. which is a huge thing that I nerd out on on every other episode, if not every episode. It's a deeply nuanced malaprop, Justin. Of course, his reference for what's modern art and what isn't is completely subjective and arbitrary. I mean, to me, that the print looked like something you'd pick up in a mall kiosk. Yeah, like, like, a, like a Z gallery. Yeah, it's not a, that's not modern art. No, that's, something you buy, art. that's something you buy outside the Banana Republic in the, exactly. in the Grove. But it got me thinking about the delineation between modern art as distinguished from art before it. Where was the line in the sand drawn? When did art become, quote, modern? Turns out modern art as a classification actually goes all the way back to the 1860s. So the works of Van Gogh and Cezanne are considered modern art. Super modern. Suggesting Tony wouldn't like their offerings much either. Friend of the pod, Caravaggio, however, isn't considered modern art. 
timeline-wise, suggesting he'd make the cut if Tony had a collection of paintings on his wall. The fucking painting. I knew that was a fucking scam. I knew that painting was a fucking scam. Okay, cut from Tony saying the Rat Pack aloud to a cut to Adriana with the feds. That's such a on-the-nose moment. Love it. I mean, it works. It works, but it's just, it's them letting you know that they're laughing at themselves along the way of writing this, right? Right. Starring in her very own noir film, no less. Nice touch with the ascot, by the way. Note, the night shot of the two cars nose-to-nose in the rain, I saw a great metaphor for an imminent collision. Mm. San Severino is asking aid if she knows of a Joseph Joey Kojo, to which I thought, who doesn't? Who among us? This Joey guy sent over a bottle of Vuv to the table Adriana was eating at with Chris, T and Valentina. Did Aid pronounce it correctly? Is it Vuv? Did you study French, Justin? I did not. Okay. Let's call it Vuv for purposes of Adriana. The feds show her a picture of his corpse. It didn't end well for him, or cleanly for that matter. Note the three, the number three emphasis, Mm -hmm. different streams of blood dried up on the side of his face. Then they show her a picture of another man, name unknown, who she IDs positively as with him before his death. The Fed in the back bolts from the car. The urgency here is important because the guy is a flight risk, especially if he knows that his associate is dead, right? Before proceeding, though, you mentioned Matt Weiner early. This is a perfect time to sort of just give a little shout out to him. Note the pace and subtle difference in storytelling through cuts with Weiner's writing. Even if you didn't know he wrote this episode, the pace and the choice of cuts here is nuanced compared to past episodes. There's a David Mamet, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross quality to it so far. I understand the rain and the use of night aid in establishing this noir quality, but there is more going on here as compared to other episodes that we've seen up till this point. There is something signature Matthew Weiner happening, I think, and the Fed bolting out of the car triggered something I thought was worthy of discussion. Again, I'm a huge fan of Mad Men. A lot of people have asked me if I would ever do another obsessive compulsive show and give up aspects of my life for it. The only other show that I would ever entertain the idea of is Mad Men. And it's because there's such a connective tissue yeah. between both shows. Jesus, because of what I said? Yeah, it's to me that's it's kind of the first moment where Adriana realizes that everything that's happening in these conversations has consequences. Thousand percent. It's you know, she, everything she's been giving them to this point has been pretty inconsequential because she doesn't know anything. And even this, she was just at dinner. She doesn't know much here. But whatever she said, set it off, and she realizes, like, holy shit, I, what I'm saying here actually makes a difference. And to this point, and throughout the show, it's the one thing you can say about Adriana's character, no matter what, is she's the beacon of, like, innocence and honesty and truth and purity. But in this episode, she's getting a taste of what it's like to pull strings and manipulate and use the dark side, if you will, to your advantage. She does that to beautiful effect at the end of the episode. I'm sure we'll get into that. Absolutely. Cut to voiceover of Tony's time immemorial speech over a shot of an office push cart from the vantage point of the caster wheels. I love the way they use the push cart in this. Love it. Yeah, Alan Taylor was phenomenal. Genius. The frenzied rattling, right? Immediately conjures up the opening sequence of one of my favorite movies, Michael Clayton. Do you remember that? The opening scene? I do, yeah. When they're in a law firm and it's all trained on this push cart. 
made me think when I saw that and I connected it here, Michael Clayton came out much later than this. Has this shot been used before? Did the Sopranos get it from somewhere? It feels familiar to me. I asked around. I got nothing. Did you... Any thoughts on no. this being like an homage of some kind? No, nothing jumped out of me. Maybe Tony Gilroy and Alan Taylor were pals. And maybe Michael Clayton got it from The Sopranos. How cool would that be? That'd be great. Carmela arrives on Ray Curdo. Camera, Carmela. Camera arrives on Ray Curdo, Freudian slip. He's wearing a fishing cap, one of those ones you stick hooks in, and other fishing accoutrements. Nice tee up for him preparing to sleep with the fishes. Is he or isn't he? Well... Potentially. Yeah. We know that it doesn't end well for the rats on the show. And now we officially know he's a rat. So it's fair to say without spoiling anything, there's a ticking clock happening on his head right now. So what about my Alan Stewart shirt from that meeting? Ralph Cifaretto spilt my coffee and ruined it. I can petty cash it, resubmit, okay? Agent Harris says they'll petty cash it. Subtle dig, I thought, on the true worth of an Alan Stewart shirt. I googled. Alan Stewart, Justin. I have no idea what Alan Stewart really is. You're about to be mind blown. If you Google Alan Stewart in shirt, what you are going to see is the Sopranos male wardrobe closet. Oh, okay. It is every, it is Tabasco Tony. It is every single one of those patterned shirt, printed shirts before Tommy Bahama. Before Tommy Bahama. Alan Stewart. My dad wears a lot of Tommy Bahama. Okay. It's wild. So it's it's Tommy Bahama before Tommy Bahama, but with a little more panache. Okay. Okay, a little less, a little more risk-taking, if right. you will. And then also, uh, Alan Stewart was famous for making the jumpsuits that Polly wears. Oh. So Christopher's in the fila. Right. But Polly was always a little notch above. Right. That was Alan Stewart. Okay. Mind blown. All these years, I was like, what is this Alan Stewart guy? And there's no website for Alan Stewart anymore. He's, you can buy his stuff vintage, but that was his niche. And boy, did he carve it out. So here's the thing about the Ray Curto, the, when they're playing back the tape yes. from the Time and Memorial Tell speech. Tell me. It's, just, it's wild to me that it just shows how slow-moving these things are. Because Sopranos was always kind of pegged to the real timeline of... The timeline synced up with the real world for the most part. For the so, most part. So if we're in... Mar- um, was it March 2004? Yeah. So if we're in March 2004, we're talking about stuff that happened in 2002. That conversation was shortly after 9-11. Right. The Tony speech to the captains. Right. So two years later, if we're to believe this timeline, they're just going over this tape now with Ray Curto. Problem for you? In the, problem for the feds. It takes time to build a case though, right? And what do you see in so many of the movies and so many of the books and so much of the literature that we see in this type of world? The state or the government, they want to have an ironclad case. Right. They don't want to fuck it up. And so it moves at a snail's pace um, because you need evidence. I think the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt, right? right? So you need beyond a reasonable doubt and it takes time. But the beauty of that is with the time comes a lot of opportunities to bury stuff, to have uh, potential witnesses disappear. Right. So that's a, it's a double-edged sword of like, if you move too slow, you're going to lose all of your evidence. Right. There's somebody on the inside, right? I think we've heard it at least a few times. Silvio's got someone that works at this office. They got the girl at the grand jury's office. Yeah, they got the girl at the grand jury's office. Uh, uh, Barese Sr.'s got someone at this person's office. So they got the feelers out. They know what's going on. It's just a question of how long can you bide your time. The guy that's pushing the cart has migrated from Harris's room over to San Severino and Waldrop's room. This is my attempt to be funny. 
Okay. The two of them are eating takeout. Perhaps their order was switched with Tony's. This whole orange peel beef crisis, Justin, could have been averted. It was a crisis. Then the pushcart guy migrates to Kubitoso's room. Rest in peace. Note that every room is working on mob stuff. Like you eloquently pointed out, they've been marinating on this stuff for a couple of years now, right? Or if not longer. The rooms, different angles. They're triangulating like Phil Jackson over here. See what I did there? I did. In Kubitoso's room, we now realized that the booth where Tony and Mazarone spoke earlier was bugged. Federal redevelopment, like you mentioned, is the giveaway. The feds redeveloped their wiring mechanism, is mm. what I saw. Ah. The most ah. hats are bugged. Interesting little thing they did there. Got me wondering. By the way, I've seen the show a million times. We both have. I forgot about the hat. Yeah. It was a nice thing. It's like, it's, the writing is so good that you, it can sink its tentacles into you again. You forget these little tiny little details, right? Becomes the whole plot point of this episode. Got me wondering... What kinds of other creative plants have FBI agents used to mic up people? Well, we saw in season three where they attempted to do that in the Sopranos household. With the light, right? With the light. The light fixture. That Meadow took to college. Yep. Plants, of course, are literally a place where the federal government puts plants. And I wondered if with the world and the way things are now, I wondered if drones were viable options. Huh. Those parabolics Agent Skip warned us about, you know? Yeah. The pushcart guy gets blasted by Kubitoso. Give it to Angela and shut the door. Wherever she is, I'm sure she's proud. When I saw this today, and in preparation for Pada Bing and having seen all the Mad Men episodes, I saw this as an exact precursor to Mad Men's Shut the Door, Have a Seat episode. There was something about that tone and vibe and cadence that was very reminiscent of Burt Cooper saying, shut the door, have a seat. Okay. It's confirmed. Mazarone, we learn, is a Fed asset. And Castleman, my boy, my guy, I've been trying to get him on the pod forever. He's mm -hmm. an actual real lawyer. He's a big shot private consultant now for securities firms or something. He's mob bossing the room. He consulted for the show too, by the way. He, oh, was, wow. he was David Chase's and Robin Green and Mitchell Burgess's de facto legal consultant ah, okay. for the trial stuff. He's doing his own version of Tony's time immemorial speech here. A little bit of symmetry, if you will. He's interested in how Tony penetrated the anonymous jury system. That's a whole issue unto itself. I'm that, just, that was for Junior's trial. For Junior's trial. The uh, juror that... Eugene Pontecorvo. Oh, Eugene yeah. Eugene Pontecorvo says, hey, you know, you got a kid, a home, and a wife, and, you know, um, let me get this. It's on me. That was the how he broke through the anonymous jury system, which is a podcast unto itself. I might actually do a pot of being PhD on uh, jury selection. Oh, wow. It could be an hours long conversation. The feds are falling flat and Castleman doesn't like it. We've still got to put Tony on trial. That's useless until we find out how they penetrated the anonymous jury system. And what? Jury duty's not tough enough? You know we don't like to dig into some citizen. Tough shit. One of those citizens is a felt. Get on it. But, of course, Kubitoso gets the last word. You know what's going on here, right? He fucked up his six-figure future with old Melvin and Myers when he blew the Junior Soprano trial. Of course he'll keep trying him until he fixes that. Old Melvin and Myers. True story. I worked for them on a contract once. Oh, jeez. Big firm. You don't want to fuck with OMM. <laughs> I had one more thought on yeah. the, the FBI. Go for team. it. Also kind of tied to what I was saying about them taking a long time to 
build this case yes. with with Ray Curto in the Time Memorial speech. When um, Castleman, when he speaks, um, when he gives his speech, he says, "What do we have? Some connections to the Bevilacqua murder, some some airline tickets." It's now we're talking like two, three years removed, right. four years removed from the airline tickets. Like they don't, and somehow in this time, they haven't gotten anything else on Tony. Nothing will stick, right? We've heard this exact dialogue from the feds. Like that's not going to stick. That's not going to stick. Those those airline tickets. Livia's dead. There's nothing. No, nothing. Exactly. So. Well, the airline tickets was supposed to be like a whole plot in season three. Yeah. Like the, the, Tony was supposed to try to like get back into her good graces, so she wouldn't testify against him in the bust out case. Right. And she passed away. She passed away. I remember talking about how cool it was, how visionary it was of David Chase to have the first episode of season three, Mister Ruggiero's Neighborhood, be about the feds being Tony's number one foe, because Tony had lost his number one foe. It was his mother. Right. And they needed to pivot on a dime, and they came up with that episode to sort of make you stop thinking about her. Right. It was genius. Yeah. It was like, it's like calling an audible. You're on fourth and long and you got to keep this going. And they did it. They connected. So it was great. And you reminding me of all this is actually bringing up a lot of my other Fed stuff that I'm going to bring up when we get to the what happens a little bit down the line here. Okay. Cut from talking about Junior Soprano and his trial, drum roll, to Junior Soprano with Tony and Feach and Bobby. Feach, there he is. John Barrymore, who of course was Drew Barrymore's dad. Shout out to Drew Barrymore. I have been fascinated by Robert Loggia, Justin. And I feel like there needs to be a podcast, a documentary, a 30 for 30 Mm. on young Robert Loggia. Like, his IMDB deep dive is another Pot of Being PhD episode. Guy's prolific. I went back and watched him play piano with his feet alongside Tom Hanks and Big just to get warmed up for this. Fucking Fred Astaire over here. Gee, I had no idea. And that was proof. Guy could dance. And they used the line in the show. It was a nice little connective thread there. Junior asks about Tony B. Aunt Cantina, we hear, is going to let them know as soon as he's out. Another Tony in our midst. Recall that Tony B. has been in jail since 1986 for hijacking a tractor trailer. Junior. Fucking weirdo, you ask me. To which I wondered, what's the backstory? The prequel? Something? Is he going to be, is Tony B going to be in Newark? Would the timeline work out? Old yeah, enough. He, yeah, he's old enough. He would, because he's about the same age as Tony, cousins. Tony, Tony Uncle Johnny. I would love to see a little connective throwback to this statement from Junior. Fucking weirdo, you ask me. Also love how Junior talks with his eyes here. The angles and stares. Part of this is because I was watching it with the sound off. So I put this out there because he's very fidgety and he's very on edge. Something's happening to him here and we're going to see it in a moment. But it's conveyed through his body as well. And it was nice to see that. Feech got Junior some dandelions. From where Tony says all the neighborhood dogs go to piss. Thoughts on the dandelions and their meaning? What the fuck is Feech plucking dandelions for? It's a weird image, right? Is it loaded in some way? I don't know. The only thing that jumped into my mind immediately was a callback to the uh, to the landscaper. Okay, but I don't I don't know if that's it. That seems kind no, of tenuous. No, this this is this is why Potabing exists. Yeah. Inquisitive Feech asks what he's got lined up for Tony B. Already putting a guy we haven't seen yet back on the street. Right. The plan is reselling airbags from boosted cars. 
It turns out it's very common even today. Also somewhat easier with everything in cars being electronic and computer controlled, I learned. So that racket would translate very well to the 2015, 16, 17, 18 cars that are all, you can basically hack them. Kind of scary. State laws, interestingly, it's not actually interesting. It's not surprising, I should say. State laws haven't really addressed the issue adequately after all these years. And every state's different. New Jersey, I looked up, has very lax laws on the subject, even after the Sopranos. Okay, Feech Leaves Jr. pushes the salad away immediately. It's like eating red fescue, he says, which is a fancy expression only Jr. would be able to say. It's lawn grass. Asks for an egg. You know about the symbolism of the eggs, right? Of course, some okay, eggs, eggs represent depth. Is somebody about to die, which is the thing that you see immediately, or you think immediately. Why, yes, hold that thought. Tony says... I don't want an egg, signaling I'm not ready to die yet. Or, in honor of your binge mode colleagues, not today, if we're channeling our inner Cereal Pharrell. Yes, it's, I just think of Tony Soprano as a young Aria. Just replace every Aria scene with James Gandolfini. And yeah, Sign I'm, me up. I'm, on. I'm in for eight more seasons. Tony got Tony B a Motorola supposed to be the best. What the fuck happened to Motorola? Motorola was, keyword, Justin, was an American telecom company out of Illinois. It sold wireless network gear like cellular base stations. They also made consumer products, of which you and I probably both owned at least a few. Do you have a a razor? I did. Yeah, me too. For a minute. Yeah. But I'm interested in this next thing that they had. They also made consumer products like phones. The company was split in two after bleeding money, like David Scatino, and has since had its parts sold around Silicon Valley to places like Google, Lenovo, Eris, you know, the usual suspects. For me personally, I feel like they peaked with the two-way pager. Yep. Are you old enough that you ever had a pager? Yeah, of course. Okay, perfect. No product they ever made had that cool exclusive factor. There was only one company that made pagers. Right. And it was them. They owned the market on pagers. I loved my pager. They were outcompeted by phones, by all the crazy innovation and new entrants to the market. So, enough on Motorola. Note in this scene that Junior is slipping up. We touched on it a moment ago. He asks for eggs twice calls Tony B, Tony Egg. Is that a slip-up, or is this guy Quasimodo over here predicting his eventual fate? I had the same thought, but I think... See, it, is that a writing thing? I I think it was um, more to show that his dementia is becoming more apparent, but I had the same thought as well. Was this supposed to um, get us in that mindset? The writers in the writing room just going like this and having yeah. fun at our expense. I was shadow boxing for those that can't see. <laughs> Carmine Lupertazzi passed away. The eggs. He was eating eggs. He was eating eggs. Yeah. Bobby unofficially begins writing Carmine's obituary. He was a great man. My cousin told me it was Carmine who invented point shaving. CCNY versus Kentucky 1951. It was all real stuff. It was real. All real. It wasn't Carmine Lupitazzi, but that was real. HBO did a doc 
on CCNY versus Kentucky in 1998. They did? The whole thing on CCNY is an HBO production. Apparently they screwed like 13 different schools. Kentucky was the biggest program. Kentucky, interestingly, was one that got was relatively unscathed. They're a hugely, wildly successful program today, but a lot of the other schools that were implicated in this scandal are pretty much defunct now or relegated to Division Three. Junior says nobody beat the spread. He bought a black Fleetwood as a result of that. A 51 Fleetwood, he says. I was a huge fan of the 67 Fleetwoods. I worked in the car business for a while, so I had a little bit, little bit of in-depth knowledge on Cadillacs. And the front ends on the 67 Fleetwoods, for my money, are better than anybody's. And I challenge uh, anybody to send me a picture of a Fleetwood that had a better front end. Sidebar, the cat above Junior's phone. I talked about that with other people. Does that mean anything to you? No, I just thought it was There's like... a cat above Junior's phone. The camera trains on it multiple times throughout the series. Yeah. I don't know. I've never... I You are 100% right, and I'm picturing it right now. But no, I never... What do you hear from people, typically? Nobody has a great answer, so I'm just asking. I mean, is it just like a thing that an old person has in their house? There's something connecting Junior to being cat-like. You know, you have to work hard for his affection. He is very cat-like. But I don't love any of that stuff. I'm waiting for like a whiz-bang thing, but we'll keep putting it out there for the world. Junior lets Tony know he wants to be cremated. Apparently this is the fourth or fifth time. I can relate to hearing something very similar. He likens their life to a game of Crack the Whip. Let me tell you something. It's like that game we used to play as kids. Crack the Whip. You run around like an idiot holding hands as tight as you can, and then the line snaps. Somebody lets go, and you're next. Interestingly, Crack the Whip is a game that involves a degree of physical coordination, which is to say, Justin, I doubt Junior would have much faith in Tony's ability to play, him not having the makings and all. The game is beautifully personified by a Winslow Homer painting, which I mention only because it allows me, one of the favorite things about this podcast is it allows me to connect the dots on a lot of stuff, This allows me to combine three things that are dear to me. The Sopranos, art history, and goodwill hunting. Of course, in that movie, Will lambasts therapist Sean's painting, calling it a cheap knockoff of a Winslow Homer. Okay, Carmine's funeral. Nice classic device introducing new people at a funeral. Out with the old, in with the new, right? Old rats on a new ship, right? Johnny Sack comes in, never looked happier. Wonder why? Behind him is Phil Leotardo, who we haven't initially met yet, and we haven't. Nobody addresses him by name. We we see we see him in the past up in the previous episode when they're introducing these characters, they're getting out of prison, but nobody directly addresses Phil, right? Not to this point. Yeah, that's why I'm being vague with it. He's still this man of mystery over here. Right. He's in the corner but his visual and presence cuts a strong edge into the frame, and you can sense he's going to be someone or something formidable. It also helps that he's played by Frank Vincent, who is somebody that we recognize from so many things. Totally. You know that it's he's a quantity that's going to be reckoned with. I have a fun aside about Frank Vincent in a second. Note the gravitational pull of Johnny Sack is stronger than Little Carmine's. We see... It's not hard. Little Carmine has no gravitational pull. No gravitational pull. But he is the son of the boss. Mm. So you would think there would be some sort of deference to him. But there's none. There's zero deference for him. Everybody thinks he's a wet t-shirt contest rigger. 
There's no affection. There's no respect. There's nothing. Everybody's angling, though, and the casket hasn't even been closed. That's how fast the vultures descend, right? That's life, especially in this world. Angelo Gareppe, Carmine's consigliere, who got out of jail the same time as Tony B., however, Mm -hmm. consoles little Carmine. He's really the only one. Tony gets a call from his aunt. Tony B's out. Again, it takes the death of a New York crime boss, Justin, to make way for the introduction of two of the show's more legendary character additions. Polly, with a great line, mm-hmm. start him off small T, code for stay off my shit. Right. Don't touch my shit. Right. We've seen this before, Polly and Furio. Polly and you're only as good as your last paycheck. Silvio says that to him. Last envelope. Envelope, thank you. And then, another character. Lorraine, keeping it together with the Pilates, Caluso. Pilates and gin. Pilates and gin, thank you. Is it Caluzzo or Caluzzo? Caluzzo, I feel like it's gotta be. I I feel like in the States it's Caluzzo, but. but In the old country? Caluzzo. Caluzzo. And her dude, the love of her life. Jason Evanina, played by Frank Fortunato. Big dude. Quantify the mindfuck that is introducing a character like this out of the blue at a funeral. A woman boss. What's going on? Well, just a few seasons prior, Tony had a problem with a woman boss, but here he doesn't. It's always been like, they're throwing fastballs with all these new character introductions, and this one's like a sidearm curveball that comes up from out of nowhere, always surprised when you see it, always extremely drawn to the character. They cast it perfectly. She's hardcore. She comes to play. Exact opposite of what you would expect to see with uh, Annalisa. Annalisa versus Lorraine Caluso in a ringed exhibition fight. Who you got? <sighs> Man. This no is, Furios. This is, this is a tough, yeah, it's a one tough on question. One-on-one. One. I gotta go with Lorraine. Oh. Yeah. Keeping it domestic. Yeah, I got to go with Lorraine. I got to go with the woman boss. Man. Really? I feel like the woman boss is going to have, you know, like uh, Liam Neeson and Taken. She has a particular set of skills that Lorraine might not have. Yeah, but everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Mike Tyson over here. Real life precedent, Justin. There's a handful of women throughout history who have had the top tier positions in organized crime. A popular business model or arrangement has been executing orders from brothers who are in prison. At least three out of the five that I looked at, that was sort of their their role. Because my brother says it, you're going to do it. Um, okay. Tony introduces Christopher as his nephew to her. Is it at all odd to you that Lorraine would have no idea who Christopher was after all these years? I don't know. I mean, how much time does uh, does Lorraine spend around the... The, the New Jersey crew? Yeah, the New Jersey crew. Like, in the, Or even like, you know, we've, ne- we've never seen her in any of the New York scenes, right? She's only out now because it's Carmine's funeral. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. Okay. I mean, we don't see every underboss. That's true. I think it also plays well to that whole notion of the, the show exists without us even watching it. There's stuff going on. And uh, to quote Johnny Sack, and from a future episode, it wasn't long ago that you used to wait in the car. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the more powerful. Great scene. Great line. Great, Great scene. <laughs> she sizes him up. He calls her Lady Shylock. Some reputation. Lady Shylock, I thought, has the makings of a varsity level spinoff. Mm-hmm. One of the things we do on the pod is always talk about what could this IP be today. Okay. Lady Shylock would be a great limited series. The younger years of Lorraine Caluzzo. 
Also, I don't know if you saw this, but there's a great autopsy discovery. Lady Shylock is a nod to Lady Darbonville, a Cat Stevens song which he wrote for Patty, the actor who played Lorraine in 1970. Apparently they had a little bit of a thing. Love that. Cut to Phil, a.k.a. I don't audition. That's what I wanted to tell you. Talked to someone that knew Frank Vincent well, and apparently the reason he was on the show as late as he was is because he never wanted to come in to audition. He said, I'm Frank Vincent, I don't audition. They're going to write something for me, and then I'm going to do the show. That's what he said, allegedly. But between you and me, David Chase had the last laugh on that character. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) He's telling a joke, a religious one. Did that mean anything to you, symbolism-wise? Getting introduced to a multi-season foe of Tony's with religious connectivity. There's something ironic about that, but I can't quite articulate what. It's like a good versus evil going on here, and this guy's going to be Tony's adversary. And, and so, I don't know. I'm putting it on the table because the religiosity of the show is always worth mentioning. And we are in a place of God. Well, I don't know if we're in a place of God. They're in a mortuary with God-like figures everywhere, which we're going to talk about in a second. Anyway, the joke is midstream. Like David Mamet instructs, enter a scene late, leave a scene early. And again, I'm mentioning him because I'm pretty sure that Matthew Weiner is a student of David Mamet's. And so you're seeing a little bit of that structure at play here. Little Carmine watches in isolation and dismay. Johnny Sack sees him and plays politics, comes over. He's the only one that comes over, Justin. Little Carmine has an agenda, wants a word in person. He's livid about the metal on his dad's rosary. It's for Opus Dei. Opus Dei, of course, is a branch of the Catholic Church that believes everybody is holy and that ordinary life is a path to heaven. Opus Dei literally means work of God. It is considered the most controversial aspect of the Catholic Church. Pope Francis, the current pope, is an advocate of Opus Dei, in particular the notion of a universal call to holiness. The pop culture timeliness of this show probably comes from Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which came out in 2003 and eventually became a movie. Have you seen Two Popes? I haven't yet. We'll talk about it after you watch it. I'm, wanna, I'm curious if you, if you think the Oscar nomination was merited. I've heard, that, I've heard people say that it wasn't. It's good. Yeah. But it, I'm not going to remember... I'm not going to remember the movie in like four years or like five years. So I feel like that should be a criteria for a nomination. It was for supporting? No. Best actor. It's for lead? Yeah. Do you know who my uh, my biggest snubs were? Pattinson and Defoe for Lighthouse. Because the movie got like cinematography, but that was it. You know, so many people talk about this every year. I feel like it's a, it's a version of this every single year about the Oscar nominations. And... The thing that doesn't get talked about enough is the politics. Yeah. And the, the guys behind the camera and the people that are involved in the financing aspect of it. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of boss moves that are happening that we're never going to ever be privy to. Right. Johnny Sachs says it's because Carmine was sensitive about what's been going on with the church. Great exchange. In New Jersey, housewife fundamentalist shit? I doubt it, John. Well, you yourself said I was like another son to him. I was being polite. It was his deathbed. I should have written those words down. Maybe you should have, John, because they don't mean anything anymore. You understand what I'm saying? Little Carmine quickly draws a line in the sand between himself and Johnny Sack. Tony overhears. Then we hear the sound of explosions in the background, 
or maybe they're in Tony's head for a minute. I thought that was a cute little device. Me too. And it kind of hints at some things that are to come. Yes. Which is all that these writers are trying to do at the beginning parts of these seasons, right? Give us stuff that makes us go, this guy's fucked, that guy's fucked. Something's going to happen here. Something's going to happen there. It's fun. And something may absolutely not happen at all, but it's the seed planting that keeps us coming back for more. Whatever it is, whatever the sound is, Ginny Sack, yet again, this is important to me here, Ginny Sack, yet again, is the cause of an uproar that could very well lead to the entire season or two's worth of arc. Ginny Sack, Justin, I'm saying it for the record, she is the Sopranos Trojan horse. There's a picture of her on the whiteboard in their writer's room. I don't know what it looked like, but there's there's a horse and Ginny Sack's inside it. I said it. This isn't quite as direct as the uh, as the Ralphie incident. That's the mole joke. That's the mole joke, right? But Ginny Sack yet again. Yet again, right. They're using her as a plot thickener. And really what's happening is Johnny Sack and Tony Soprano are going to be at loggerheads pretty soon. But Ginny Sack is the underbelly of that. Sidebar, the woman who's in front of T viewing Carmine, Old Flame? Of Carmine's, right? Not of Tony's. No, no, no. Oh! Cut to Tony watching a war doc about a guy who's alive because another guy took a shot for him. Wonderful little setup for what's to come between Tony and Tony B. Also a great way to show Tony's guilt, right? Then, cut to Aid and her friend, Tina. Aid's maid of honor. I have problems with her. I do as well. But I get it. She wants a guy like Christopher, she says. It's tough out there, Justin. Mm-hmm. No. Instead, she's on a date with little Polly, but not holding back on being flirty with Moltisanti. Is there any worse catch in the Sopranos verse than little Polly? Like, is that, like, he just, that, that feels like, of course she has a shitty opinion of men because she's on a date with little Polly. But I feel like she could do worse. He's a made guy. He's, a, he's made, but he's little Polly. He's not an associate, <laughs> associate, as they say. He's not a soldier. He's up there. He's got a car. He's got a home. He's got a car and a home. He's paying a mortgage, right? I don't know. Okay, so my read on her here and the problem is that from a writing standpoint, technical standpoint, she's moving too fast right out of the gate. So my radar goes up. She's inserting herself between Adriana and Christopher, which is almost too easy of a tell that it's not going to end well for her. It wasn't finessed. I would have liked her to be a little bit more finessed Maybe at the end of this episode when we're done, I'll get some closure on that. But I just felt like, slow it down a little bit. I also, I didn't remember seeing this character on the show before. And I know that the Sopranos did this often where they'd introduce a character for just an episode. Um, But it turns out she was in an episode. She was in another truth pick where she played Mustang Sally's uh, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, But even still, something kind of felt off about me about her essentially being introduced here, right? Because that was a very minor role in the Mustang Sally episode. Right. And, you know, we probably don't remember that. I know I didn't remember that, and I've watched the show a lot more than most people. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, she's inserting herself in between Christopher and Adriana. Yeah. It goes back to this too fast. It's just, eh. Also note, she's wearing fur. Predatory overtones. But perhaps she's about to be a fur coat herself, proverbially speaking. Mm. Okay? Targets on her back. Seeing her in fur made me wonder the last time I saw anybody wearing fur in real life. It's been a minute. It's been a long time. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess this is the part of the podcast where I confess that I'm vegan. 
My mother is very much not, and she owns a few fur coats. She hasn't worn them in like 20 years. Right. So they're just sitting there. She can't even sell them. You think part of it is because of the vegan culture, a conscious consumption of food culture? I think we've kind of realized it's just fucked up to wear animals like that. Like, yeah. I mean, pay a couple thousand bucks for a mink, right? Yeah. That's kind of fucked up. It is kind of fucked up. I've, I've always agreed. Yeah. One of the things that I always talk about with people is that the show's aged very well. This is one example maybe where it is not so much as far as the current culture. Yeah. You won't see that on TV today unless it's a period piece. Cut to Tony outside Tony's aunt's house. Camera angle looking down from the staircase, reminiscent of this not-too-long-ago dream, his not-too-long-ago dream, where he sees a woman come down the stairs and stop. You have any thoughts on who that woman was from episodes back? Do you remember what I'm talking about? The... Tony's dreaming that he's like an immigrant. Right, where he's, the, he's a laborer going about. comes down the stairs. Who, who do who I... that to you? That was Livia. Okay. That was Livia. Without a doubt, that was Livia. Uh, never thought I'd live to see this day. Well, here you are. Still here. Tony. Great response. Well, here you are. Still here. Even for someone he hasn't seen in a while, he won't suffer their morbid shit. Tony's aunt is Livia's sister. Love getting into the parentage of all this, uh, especially when you are introduced to the new characters, right? There's a picture of Livia on the wall, one of her happier moments for sure. Safe to say you could probably count those on one finger. Tony B's got an ex-wife, and she's holding his twins hostage, we learn. Again, we haven't seen this guy yet, but we know him, we know about him, his family, the business provisions that have already been put into place for him. Tony's already exhibiting guilt over him. What a powerful... People have said this was... He had a very subdued and soft entry, but I would push back and say this is a powerful entry for a new character. Everything about him just feels so consequential, and we haven't even seen him yet. Right. That's incredible. Absolutely. Tony asks about Kelly. Camera pans to a picture on the wall that looks like a girl version of AJ. Only two to three degrees more aggressive. That's the best picture grandma could find to put on the wall? Well... Yeah, I think that was actually the best picture that she could find. What does a bad picture of her look like? (laughs) Then, Tony B. walks in, played by Steve Buscemi. Tony Soprano is overcome. Wonderful moment, Justin. And we don't really even have a full context yet, which signals that it's just incredible writing. We know that this was a long time coming, this embrace. Also, the suit he's wearing. The Miami Vice suit. I mean, it's a time capsule from the time he went away. Right. But also maybe signifying that he might be a little bit of a fish out of water, you know? Big time. And he has an agenda. And we're going to hear about it. God, Tom. Look at us. 15 fucking years. The language. Echoes of Livia. Then we get a nice photo flash cut from a picture of the two of them to walking into a surprise welcome at Vesuvio's. I got Pepper's been marinating for 15 years. (laughs) (laughs) Is that even possible? No. It can't be, right? It can't be possible. Tony and Artie are still dancing around each other. Back to that Armagnac thing, remember? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jean-Philippe. Yeah, and the airing. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Message machine broken? Carm welcomes him, but lets him know Nancy and the twins couldn't make it. Something about her aunt in Bayonne, sciatica, also known as, Justin, 
the dumbest fucking excuse to get out of something, but effective. I mean, we're talking 15 fucking years here in Ant and Bayonne, sciatica. How many ants in Bayonne have been laid to rest by people trying to get out of stuff in the tri-state? <laughs> I, I loved um, the way that uh, Buscemi his acting in this in this moment is it becomes immediately apparent just what class of actor there is on the show like i think so much of the acting is phenomenal on the show but you know there was obviously like a, a tear that was like gandolfini and falco and some of the other leads like lorraine and um but with buscemi it just becomes like immediately clear just like the way he reacts with his eyes to the news that they're not coming like holy shit like this is phenomenal actor that's joining this cast for me it was when he you see him in the miami vice shirt just him going like this yeah and they embrace there's a body language recognition that you and carmella jim and Edie are the queen and king of the show and i'm right up on your tier at that moment right tony b meets the family sees how much everybody has grown then he excuses himself to say hi to uncle zio to show him the phone. Why did we never get more of Uncle Zio? I mean, if you're lucky enough to have an Uncle Zio, give the man some lines. Reminisce a little. One thing that I thought was phenomenal when he was meeting the family, uh, Buscemi, Tony Blondetto, was there's like this this thing, right, when you start introducing new characters in the show, are they, are they, is it jumping the shark, is, like, you diluting the quality, like, it's like the classic Simpsons, like, Poochie the Rockin' Dog, right? Um, and to compare Tony Blondetto to Poochie the Rockin' Dog, as I'm sure I'm not the first person to have ever done, um, he, he just, he appears on the show, and they have to make some kind of acknowledgement of that, and that comes from Bobby Jr., who says, why have I never met you? I've never even heard of you. And it's just this this beautiful acknowledgement, right, in this very subtle way, or maybe not so subtle, I don't know. But, like, that they're introducing new characters and, like, people might have questions about it, but, like, it's actually, like, this is the world these people live in and it's, it's okay. I love what you said, actually. About Poochie the Rockin' Dog, of course. Of course. Yeah. To have Bobby Jr. call out Buscemi. Think about that for a second. <laughs> it's humbling. Yeah. It's a way to sort of let the other cast members know like, hey, look, we're all in this together. He got told by a teenager with minimal lines. Yeah. Actor was Angelo Masagli. He was on the podcast. Great guy. But interesting. Yeah. It, it makes sense. That's how you introduce him is you have a kid break his balls. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're, you're Steve Buscemi, the big movie guy that David Chase was too shy to ask to do the, do the show. This is how I'm going to get you back on that now. Because at that point, by the way, season five, The Sopranos was bigger than anything anybody had ever done. They were talking about it. The interview that David Chase and Steve Buscemi gave an interview together where they basically, you know, David Chase was being humble. But basically what was being said was that people were talking about your show more than they were talking about any other movie that has ever come out since The Godfather. And, you know, you were being deified. How did it feel to be deified? And Chase's response deadpan was like, oh, I was born to be a deity. You know, <laughs> I was born to be deified. Like, of, co- of course I, of course, yeah. you know, of course. Anyway, I love what you said. We, so we get a great visual that I love. The four Sopranos, Tony, Carmela, AJ, and Meadow, they disband. It's a synchronized turn followed by a pirouette. Baryshnikov over here. 
So Tony's alone for a second and Tony B gets a drink by the bar alone. I don't know about you, but my guard is up when I see that. Something's off. They're close, but not so far away. It's super relatable too. When you haven't seen someone in a long time, stepping back to take inventory midway through the interaction, it was, it was sort of interesting, but it felt weird. It felt like a weird transition to Tony Soprano giving a speech, in effect, giving us all the backstory that we need to move forward. So what do we learn here? Let's do the math equation. We learn that Tony Uncle Johnny is Tony Soprano, and Tony Uncle Al is Tony B. Mm -hmm. Those are, Johnny and Al are their respective fathers, right? Then we learn that there's a Tony Uncle Phil who's deceased, and that, to me, was a great connective thread, a dime, if you will, to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Mm-hmm. Every time they say Uncle Phil, every time Tony Soprano says Uncle Phil, I thought about how cool a parallel universe would be where the two of them have an encounter together. Men of similar stature. Men of similar stature, for sure. Okay, note the group shot during the speech. Christopher standing in the middle, arms folded. Is he sensing a power struggle? Or maybe that he's not Tony's favorite anymore? Do you see any of that there? Too early. It's too early. Um... I didn't notice that until you pointed it out. Okay. Um, I did my job, that means. You did a great job. Um, this, for without spoiling anything, this does become a little bit of a thing in a few episodes. Absolutely. Though. So the seed is planted, fair to say. Walking outside the Bing, a distinction is made between how well Meadow is done and how poorly Kelly has done. I know this the series likes to do this with Meadow and other female characters. It's like outside the bing no less. Outside the bing. It's this is this reminded me immediately of Tracy and University mm-hmm. where the whole B plot in University was Meadow's struggles with her roommate and um Caitlin. Caitlin. And there was some other meta text there to the what Caitlin was going through like watching the movie Freaks but like overall like they were contrasting the problems of Meadow with the problems of Tracy and Meadow's seemingly minor problems were taken much more seriously than mm-hmm. Tracy's very real problems 100%. and it gets into issues of class and whatnot. Totally. And same here. Like my daughter's doing better than your daughter right. and it's because of the circumstances of well one father's a felon. Right. You know? And Tony calls him out on it like what do you want from me? Is Tony not a felon at all? Like he's never picked up anything? I think he's beat all those raps, man. He's clean, just... he's clean as a whistle, and he's look, man. He's Junior Soprano's the boss of the family. Yeah, we've only seen him arrested once, and that was in season two. And even then, he was just hanging out in an office in, the, right. in the precinct. He's in a cell a couple of times, but he's by and large is one one of the mysteries and paradoxes of the show. Uh, he says it himself. You know, there's two outcomes for guys like me: Either. the can or the other thing, right? And we know that he's not going to the can. So, cut to Polly, quoting Sun Tzu. It's like Sun Tzu says, a good commander is benevolent and unconcerned with fame. What? That's an actual quote. But coming from Polly, it feels a little condescending. The whole thing is undercut by Silvio having to correct him. Right. Zoo, but, zoo. Yeah. <laughs> but he's... Not benevolent. Tony's not benevolent. Tony's upset. And Paulie's got beef with Tony, right? And he thinks that Tony wants to be the big shiny mob boss. That part didn't sit well with me, but the benevolent thing was a low blow. Also, the visual of two clusters of guys 
The way they're bunched together combined with the angles and darkness, I say it all the time, venue notwithstanding, these frames look like religious paintings. These guys could be apostles, you know, at a table about to sit down to break bread together. It's wonderful to see. Did you get a chance to go to the Bing? The satin doll at the... Yes. Yeah. Not this time, but I've been in the past. There was... It's almost this, like, with the way it's set up in there, they kind of have to <laughs> sit in this, like... Yeah. The, that's, like, the only place where they can really... I don't know if I'm spoiling it for anybody who wants to take a trip there, but the... No. But the... the that's like the only place they could really like actually get the guys and film and get, in, the, shot. And get the shot, but it ends up working out perfectly no, for it what you start. perfect. And right. Alan Taylor made it. it. It was it was a painting, you know. The, when they're when they're clustered together, the way it's lit and that angle, it's just that up close angle. It's a wide shot, but it's up close, and it, it's a signature Sopranos thing. From above, Tony sees Feech, hand Blundetto, an envelope. You think their side thing goes back to time spent in the can? Like they're looking out for each other? You watch my back, I'll watch yours? Is that what you, I saw that. Did you see that? Did they actually interact in, in prison? Because he said, he said, oh, I missed you, at blah, blah, blah. I would imagine. Yeah. I would imagine I like a, uh, a bus or something. Cut to Tony and Johnny Sack having a meeting in the bathroom. Great shot of Sack on the can. Also, he's every dad that needs a moment of tranquility. Then, Johnny Sack lamenting Little Carmine's wet t-shirt contest racket. He fixed them. You know where this is going. Wet t-shirt contests as a business model. Here's a quick 101. Such contests began in the early 1970s and were originally tied, shockingly to me at least, to ski culture. They were promotional contents that brands used for launching new products like skis, apparel, goggles, stuff like that. They became a cottage industry in Florida by the early 90s, which was a perfect window of time for Carmine to become an entrepreneur, right? Little Carmine. Okay, enough with the pot of Bing gone wild. <laughs> Cut to Tony B. digging himself a hole, part three. Boy, are you fat. What did you say? Who's he mimicking? Why? Well, he's... Reginald Van Gleeson, he tells us, this fucking guy. The reference is one of many characters played by Jackie Gleeson. Oh, okay. I was wondering if there was a connection there. Reginald was a philandering, top-hat-wearing millionaire, which made me wonder if T would don a top hat if it was era-appropriate. Do dons wear hats? And if so, would T make an exception, what with his finding them problematic anywhere other than on the Stugats. We see him wearing hats on the Stugats. It's pretty much the only place you see him wearing a hat. It's safe to say it's very minimal, yeah. and it's never in a restaurant. So Tony takes the mockery in stride, but Justin, you think Tony B is flexing here? Or yeah. is it purely benign ribbing? No, I think... I don't know if it has much malice behind it, but it's certainly, you know, nobody else can speak to Tony like this. Cut to a stunning shot. Love this. Of the Skyway diner where Christopher got shot. This whole sequence is epically cinematic. The color palette, the hue of the sky contrasted with the griminess of the bridge, Tony B's shirt, the frame crosscut of a diner booth that's two in one episode already like we talked about. Mazarone's was at night, Tony B's is at dawn. A new beginning contrasted with a cold, bitter end. Now that we know Mazarone's cooperating with the feds, of course. The setting, the waitress, the coffee, 
the dishes clanging, the phone booths, light commotion, just a fucking happy place for us old guys. Anytown, USA, Nostalgia Diner. Tony Soprano wants to brainstorm ways to get Tony B back in the game. Tony B, though, has other plans. Get his... I have to read this twice. Imagine hearing it. Imagine being Tony and hearing this. Reading this makes me cringe. He wants to get his massage license and become a licensed massage therapist. That's honest work. Honest work. He wants to go legit. But note their cadence together. We talked about this already too. You could watch these two guys at a table for an hour. Think about that for a sec. How powerful the acting is. How powerful the chemistry is between the two of them. That if there was an episode of just Tony, Tony S and Tony B, it could pass. Just the two of us. He's been away from all this for a long time, he says. Justin, is that enough to get out, though? Once you're in, aren't you in? Shouldn't he know that? Yeah, but do you get any kind of pass when you've been in prison? I don't don't think so. You don't think so? You don't think? I I don't know. They don't give you an opportunity to go clean? It's obvious, no matter what happens, that whatever business he does get in, that Tony's going to tax it, though, right? I think so, yeah. That goes without saying. You can go legit but we're getting our envelopes every week. Jeez, that's bleak. Fair? That's bleak, <laughs> yeah. And Ponte Corvo later, without spoiling anything, Ponte Corvo wants out, but it doesn't go so well. No. Anyway, it bothered me because they're not giving him any options. They're, they're, giving, they're giving him an out, and they're, it's like there's a little bit of nepotism at play, but we'll see how it plays out, right? Tony B says, I need regular work until I'm certified. Just regular work. Notice the distinction. Tony's scrambling reluctantly in his mind with ways to be helpful. He comes up with a delivery driver for a linen company. Not Bobby Gattoletto, but a Korean guy. Could be a title of a good song, I thought when I heard that. But he's removing himself from the table, almost as if he's been wounded. I got the sense that Tony didn't like this, but he's going along with it for now at least. Tony B doesn't have a driver's license, but Tony's got a guy at the DMV. No problem there, right? You got a guy at the feds, you got a guy at the DMV. I would love to know somebody that has a guy at the DMV. Personally. Oh, God, yeah. Did you get that new license, by the way? The, I haven't gotten it yet. The real ID? I, just, I got it. We made an appointment, and we scheduled ahead of time, and we still had to wait an hour. Oh, my God. So... You know what? I got a lot of guys on the East Coast. I don't have a lot of guys in L.A. Really? I feel like I, I need more guys. I go back home, I got a guy for everything. You need a DMV guy I in need L.A. A, I need a DMV guy. I need, I need guys. The DMV guy. If you think traffic was no joke in L.A., the DMV is no joke. Cut to the Soprano movie room. Carm throws AJ out so she and the girls can watch Citizen Kane. Number one on AFI's American movies list. Have you watched, have you, did you ever at a certain point in your life go through that list and start watching the movies because of this, either because of this show or because of your not because of this show, interest no. in the world? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, yes. I mean, I don't think I've ever like gone through and like judiciously like check them off, but. Fair to say you've done, you put a dent on the list. Yeah. Okay. Carm reads Leonard Maltin's thoughts on the movie aloud to the gang. Leonard is still going strong today, by the way. Oh, wow. And his movie guides published all the way to 2014. Citizen Kane, he writes, was a film that broke. Carmela makes a point to read this. The writers made a point to have Carmela read this because of one reason, which you will see through my dramatization here. 
Citizen Kane, he writes, was a film that broke all the rules and invented some new ones. <coughs> Sopranos. Cinematography, music, and screenplay are all first rate. <coughs> Sopranos. Written by Wells and Herman J. Something, she says. The something is Mankiewicz. But what I put here in the notes is, was that a subtle dig on writers that come off the bench? I think it might just be Carmelo not being able to pronounce anything that doesn't end with a vowel. I hope so. They put the movie on, and then they all blankly watch the FBI warning. Nice touch. It lingered a little bit longer than I feel like it normally does. Was it longer than in uh, the season two episode? You know, com- uh, commendatory? Yeah. When they were at the beginning? It was definitely longer. It was longer? Yeah. When they were watching Godfather 2 on DVDs when DVDs were new? And thank you for pointing that out. That's a nice symmetry because we've seen this before. And we're talking about a woman boss in this one too. By the way, is Lorraine... Lorraine is a captain, right? I believe so. She's made... She's not a soldier. She's one up. She's capo regime. Okay. I'm, I'm asking. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure of the hierarchy. She's whatever, consequential right. enough that she goes right up to Tony, though. A soldier's not going to walk up to Tony at a funeral That's true. and have a face-to-face. That's true. So she's equivalent of maid. If I'm wrong, tell me. Rosebud. Okay, so and if there's no significance here, it's okay, because I don't think there is. But I want to say it because we look at everything on the podcast. The sequence of shots that we see on Citizen Kane are Rosebud, followed by a puff of smoke, followed by a no trespassing sign, followed by the end. Did you follow that to any kind of logical conclusion? I didn't. Did you? No. But it did set up the great Adriana line. Awkward banter between the women, with mostly more awkward silences. Being thoughtful about cinema doesn't come naturally to this group. But then, the mysterious woman in the back, never seen her before, she breaks the dam of conversation open when she talks about the work of one of their friends. When she talks about the work one of their friends had done. Cosmetic work, of course. Right. The laugh allows enough space for Ro to check in on Carm. How you doing? Ro was a boss in these... Oh, she's phenomenal. She's phenomenal. Sharon Angela. At this point, do you see Carm and Tony getting back together, Justin? Watching this for the first time? Do you feel like it's over or is there a window? No, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was over. Just a question of when. Okay, Janice. The whole purpose of this scene, in my opinion, the whole purpose of Citizen Kane, in my opinion. You'd think there'd be some romance, at least. Janice, you're a newlywed. I know. Six months, and Bobby still hasn't found my rosebud. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he should hire a reporter. <laughs> Justin, in a world where we seldom get full-circle treatment, the ambiguity of David Chase. Mm-hmm. Here we get full circle, at least with respect to the sequence. Citizen Kane was to propel Janice's punchline. I think they just couldn't resist it. And they, of course, they had to pick Janice and Bobby, right? Yeah, and it's too easy. And you got to rib that relationship as much as you can because you know she's playing the boss with Bobby. She was moving in on him from right. the moment. The moment his wife passed away, yeah. and this was her goal, right, was to be elevated to the level of a Carmella. Right. Um, but that was my second favorite line from any of the women in that scene. My favorite was Adriana, when she says, A sled. He should have told someone. <laughs> Cut to aid with San Severino. She's plucking out the insides of a croissant. What a waste, I thought. 
and lamenting the women complaining about their marriages. San Severino couldn't care less. Aid is desperately trying to make friends. Can somebody, anybody hear me? Is what she's saying over and over again. Then San Severino senses the moment. However, reluctantly, she opens up. Her ex-husband, an agent we learned, climbed right over her to become a supervisor on the Milken task force. She's referring, of course, to Michael Milken, who was, is, a powerful player on Wall Street, who in the 90s was found guilty of multiple counts of securities and tax violations, the largest consequence of which was a lifetime ban from any involvement in the securities industry. FYI, he's been trying to get a presidential pardon for that, from that, ever since, including most recently with our current president. He's probably got a better chance now than... (laughs) This is his window right here. If there ever was a window... This is it. Michael Milken, I'm pulling for you in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) San Severino soundbite. While we were trying to get pregnant, he climbed right over me to become an assistant supervisor in the Milken task force. Moved to Los Angeles and jumped a pay grade without me. The way she delivers that line is so good. I love this actor, Karen Young, I think her name is. Disappeared off the face of the earth. She's untraceable. Invited her on the pod. Would love to have her on. If she ever hears this. She was in Jaws the Revenge, by the way. Did okay, you, I didn't. Do you ever saw that one? No, I didn't see that, that was one. It was a horrible movie, but it was a horrible movie that you love to watch. Then she gets prophetic in an out here making a Western kind of way. And nowhere but the FBI's the line clearer between the good guys and the bad guys. And you're with the good guys now. Super loaded and also really inaccurate. Yeah! Note the cut to Adriana's very patriotic-looking fingernails, though. Nice little tie-in. Okay. Coming close to the end, cut to the crew at the pork store. Silvio Vito Pauli with Tony B walking in. A lot of ball breaking all around. This is probably, if there was a ball breaking meter for the show, it would be, like, in the red for this particular scene. I think this was important, though, to show that, like, Tony Blondetto was, the Steve Buscemi was part of this cast like he was like it was a way to ingratiate him almost immediately just to put him in there busting balls and also to show that he doesn't give a fuck what these people think of right him. he's got the balls to, right yeah walk in and then start what does he do he starts giving everybody a massage i mean i thought that was funny but the the funnier part to me was two seconds later when tony soprano walks in the look on his face what the fuck is this hey t you got to try this. He's really fucking good. Well, it's not like being in the joint to teach you how to ease another man's tensions. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm gone for one hour. All of a sudden, it turns into a fucking slumber party. Tony B can dish the ball-breaking faster than a line cook at the pantry in downtown L.A. Yeah. He never skipped a beat while he was in the can. This scene was a moment to show us that as well. Fuck you, Polly. Yeah. You're nobody. Um, okay, but... That aside, he digs himself deeper with Tony Soprano, part four. They exchange words outside. It's a wonderfully framed shot. Kim's Southside laundry insignia is visible. Hold on to that. Things have changed around here. I'm the boss of this fucking family. The expanse of the shot. You're crowding me, Tony B says. Knock off the massage shit. It's a place of business, not a Jack LaLanne. Tony B looks away, wondering the same thing I won't say we all are, but most of us are. What the fuck's a Jack LaLanne, right? Before the show, Justin, I always thought it was just a juicer. 
No, 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 no. I had a juicer. He owned gyms, didn't he? He had gyms back in the day, health clubs, what yeah. you call them, everywhere. Yeah. It was like 24-hour fitness, but Jacqueline, do you know what happened to him? Or what happened to the gyms? Like, No. I love this exchange um, because the you're crowding me part is where we see that Tony Blundetto's actually like, we just see him as this ball buster. We see him as this guy that's just coming back from prison and he's like, he's a little weak. We think of him as like maybe a little like, I don't want to say purer, but like a little bit kinder soul because he wants to get into massage therapy and step away from this life, right? And when Tony Soprano's leaning into him, he says, you're crowding me. And it's a very clear indication like he's also capable of going to that level if necessary. Tony Blundetto's also capable of responding if necessary. And remember, Justin, they were equivalent prior to right. just a few years ago. Right. They were the same. Right. And this whole thing about what he should have done and what he should have done and who should have been there and who shouldn't have been, they were both equal on equal footing. And so when you come out of the can or when you come out of a place and you go to a reunion and you see your old friends, you revert back to square one. You might be doing this. You might be at this life station. Right. But I knew you and you, you know, whatever it is. The other funny part about this, this monologue that Tony Soprano delivers is when he says, this is a place of business. Yeah. What the fuck business do they really do back there? Again, he takes the high road. Yeah. And his hypocrisy is on full display. Yeah. But, you know, he is also a leader and he has to, he has to yeah. lead by example. But when he goes there, he's not exactly leading by example. He's just got a Bialy in his hand. Yeah. You know? Great stuff. Okay, fashion aside, tease print. Probably an Alan Stewart shirt, by the way, given what we know about him now. But you see square pegs and round holes. That's the pattern that's on his shirt, which to me signaled a metaphor that these two may prove to be incompatible after all. Set sidebar. Those tables on the left are everything. It makes the scene. The table, the tablecloth, the little chairs. It's incredible. Okay, the stage is set. T's two rivals this season, and one of them is Blood. Back to Aid's friend Tina. The always talking like a whore because that's what men like sequence. Mm. Maroon 5's playing in the background. She will be loved. Where's your allegiance with Maroon 5, Justin? There, there isn't much. I don't, yeah. Hard pass. Pass, yeah. Maybe not hard, medium pass. No, it's, it's um, we, can, we can say hard pass. Hard pass, hard okay. pass yeah. Next, we have a great exchange with Tony and Silvio, having a time, oh, do great. whatever I want. Stay out late, come home drunk, fuck anyone I want. Yeah, so what's the difference? I don't know. It's a mindset. Tony says it's a mindset. I fucking love that. It's so simple. It's throwaway, but there's something powerful about it, something informed, something awfully clinical sounding. It's... Melfi sounding. But the, the Silvio part of that is just like one of those great Silvio moments, yeah. right? It's interesting their views on marriage and kind of gives you a window into Tony's. Tony likes the mindset. He likes the philandering, but he also likes the structure. He tells Carmela, I'm old school. Yeah. You know, and it comes out there. Patsy comes in, gives T some intel that he got during a pickup. That the feds were outside Napoleon's where Tony's Gumar is. That was a way to get Tony to get suspicious about Mazarone. I get it. I would have liked that Tony would have been a little bit suspicious in the beginning of the episode. I don't know how. It, it, can, it will work great fine, but you got to give Patsy something to do. So Patsy does it. <laughs> Tabasco Tony, Spearmint Silvio, and Pasty Patsy. These are the outfits of the guys that we have in the Wait, wait a minute, right wait a minute. I know Tabasco Tony, right? So like, then you got Spearmint Silvio. He's wearing all green. Okay. And then Patsy's wearing all white. 
that okay. said the ghost right. of Christmas past. All right. So those are, that's their little rat pack I got here. Another powerful line. I know it wasn't me they tailed that night because my whole life's in a fucking rear view. Mine too. That is fortune telling. Tony Soprano's always looking around until he's not. Tony immediately puts two and two together. It's Mazarone. If he flipped, I'd be fucked. We all would. Silvio, with a nice remind how deeply embedded their tentacles are in the architecture of society. Well, he ain't been to the grand jury because we would have heard from our girl up there. Arrange a meet, feel him out. Tony decides to do it himself. He mentions how good his old man was at vibing people out. Interesting choice, though. Almost like he's justifying or validating his leadership. His insecurity comes off his sleeve and into his dialogue with the crew here. A little bit. Uncharacteristic from the get-go, Justin. He wasn't on to Mazarone from the beginning, and now he's kind of doubting his leadership a little bit. Like, how the fuck did I let this slip? Something's going on in Tony's head. He needs Melfi, is my point. Cut to Carm seeing the movie room gutted. No more nights for her. Did little Polly do this job again? Mm, yeah. It had to be him, right? Yeah. The white caps. Cut to Mazarone, nervous in a car. He's wearing the hat. Carm calls T. Love this moment. Note her posture for the call with Tony. Power pose. Amy Cuddy would approve. You're just going to do it and do it and do it, even if you're terrified and just paralyzed and having an out-of-body experience until you have this moment where you say, Oh my gosh, I'm doing it. Like, I have become this. I am actually doing this. She wants a separation agreement. Tony wants no lawyers. Settle it like adults. This just after he ripped the AV equipment out of the house. Classic Tony. Yeah, he's such a hypocrite. I love him. Tony gives him a hug. Mazarone, that is. Pats him down, big pussy style. I didn't notice that. Um, but yeah, my, my last watch, I noticed that he like gives an extra couple, uh, pats. A little couple of pats. Very reminiscent of, uh, season two. Then Tony comes back to the office. One of the best lines of the episode, if not the series. We couldn't tell shit. What the fuck am I, a mind reader? The waffling (laughs) from overconfident to brushing it off is great range. Yeah. Tony, James Gandolfini can go bipolar on a dime. Yeah. it's, It's a gift and an honor and a privilege for us to be able to watch it and talk about it and analyze it. Then he comes to the realization. He says it looks like he lost some weight. That's what Jack Masseron said. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. How would that tip Tony off? I don't like that. I, I don't understand that. I've thought about this a lot over the years, not just, not just in the past weekend as I've been preparing for this podcast. I've thought about this a lot and the best I can, I mean, I love it. I love that that's what sets him off, right? But I think it's it might come down to as simple as anybody that's bullshitting Tony, the, the people in Tony's life that aren't bullshitting him, look at Tony Blundetto, look at Steve Buscemi, not bullshitting him, and calls him fat earlier in the episode. Yeah. Now you get a guy that's obviously bullshitting him, and the first thing he says is, oh, would you lose a little bit of weight? Right. Chris suggests Tony B do the Mazarone thing. Tony jumps on it. Your cousin is trying to go straight. Again, why is that an option? I don't understand why he's getting off. What the fuck is wrong with you? The man is trying to go straight. Don't you give a fuck about your cousin? I'm sorry, T, you're right. That was a great party the other night. Fuck him. Guy's fucking useless to me. 
it's a great switch right there, right? Where he immediately goes from trying to protect Emotional him. Emotional to defensive. Yep. Was that a yes on Mazarone? Tony's <laughs> got his own process. What's the process here? Everybody's looking at it like, what am I supposed to do here? Cut to Carm and the girls. No Casablanca. Number three is the Godfather. They all sigh. Cute. Cute, Matthew Weiner. Roe and Aid step out for a smoke break. This is a great moment. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely great. Roe smokes like a boss, by the way. I want to point out her command of a cigarette. It's unrivaled. That Roe's wearing a Fila tracksuit only augments her mystique and legend here. Then Roe gets biblical. I mean, it's like Judas is something. Eating that last supper with Jesus, and the whole time he knows they're going to crucify him. I mean, at least Judas didn't go into any apostle protection program. He hung himself. He knew what he did. Oh, look at you. You're shivering. What I love about this is, as a viewer in that moment, you almost forget that Big Pussy did not go into the witness protection program. He was killed and dumped in the ocean. But the lies that these people tell their families and even tell the viewers, become internalized. And the way that they are able to keep the lies. Yeah. From like slipping or someone slipping up, it's, they're pretty good at l- hunkering down on it. But after a while, the lie becomes the truth. Yeah. And to these people, to everyone in this world, except for the three people on that boat, Big Pussy went into the witness protection program. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know. That Omerta shit is real, man. Yeah. Cut to Tony drinking in his mother's house. Next to the Rat Pack picture, Tony moves it around the room, trying it out on different walls. Doesn't he suspect that it's bugged, though? I was always a little surprised that he never looked at the picture. It was an like easy... Like, ripped it open or... Yeah, like, like yeah. Tear, the, tear the wood off or something. Yeah. That's what I would do. It's, it's, that's what, I always expected that myself, yeah. I suspect that I'm more paranoid than Tony Soprano is what I'm trying to say. Oh, well, that's a um, <laughs> good place to be. Back to Carm and girls. Aid tries to tell them what's going on, but she can't. Good for her. Good on her for not, I would say. She storms out and falls flat on her face. Something about the fall, though, Justin. There's messaging in there. It's... Almost like the universe saying, shame on you. It was, a, it was an embarrassing fall. It was more accentuated or more exaggerated than a fall. So there's the moment where uh, Tony meets Jack Masterone for the second time at the diner. Yeah. And they get out of the cars and they begin walking. Yeah. And he goes, oh, what's the curb? You're going to, you know, like Tony says that to Jack Masterone, like to prevent him from tripping. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, um, a scene or two later, the... Another rat actually trips off the curb. And did someone warn her about the curb? No, no, but just the curb coming into play for both of them. Got it. That's what I was looking for, and Autopsy gave it to us. Yeah, I mean, like... Amen. Back to Tony staring at the Rat Pack. He places a call to Tony B. It's like 3 in the morning. Note the number 3. Kidding is fine, he says, but I gotta maintain respect. They talk like they're kids again, which is very relatable. The scene has always been like, when I watched it when I was younger, there was a buddy of mine that I would talk to on the phone and I would do the exact same thing. Late into the night, we would debrief on our yeah. nights or our dates. It's very human. It's very relatable. And it's why we, one of the reasons why we love these characters. I used to do that when I was younger. Now, as an editor at The Ringer, I do that with one of my writers after like we had a long day with the uh, NFL playoffs yesterday. Yeah. And then I got on the phone with him immediately afterward. And you debrief? Yeah. That's awesome. Is it phone though or is it just texting? No, we get on the phone. That's cool. Yeah. That's old school, man. Well, he's, he, Danny Heifetz is his name. He's uh, 24. So it's wild that he wants to get on the phone, but yeah. Oh, 24 year old on the phone. 24 year old on the phone. He's got an old soul. Old soul. 
Danny um, Hyphus can also. Zero to bitch. It's a great line. Tony B's a good listener, which we learn via camera that conveys this. You're my cousin and my best friend. Great, powerful line. She's like, please don't kill me. Almost. <laughs> yeah, I'll buy a fucking lunchbox. What does that mean? I think it means kids on the, in the sandlot. Like two kids at school, they, they open up their lunchboxes and they start talking. I don't, I don't get the reference. If there is a reference out there, let us know. This exchange drives home, though, that Tony wants to make things right for Tony B. But he's having a hard time letting go. Without spoiling it, it sets the stage for Tony B's arc. Now, cut from Tony on the recliner to Tony in the bathroom. The regularness of life. Both guys in their mother's houses. Yikes. He looks at himself in the mirror, like we all tend to do when we're in our mother's houses for prolonged periods of time. Jesus, what the fuck am I doing with my life? He gets in the car, rolls the window down. Okay, this is a, something that I caught too, which, which was late. and I, Maybe you already caught it. He gets in the car, rolls the window down over a bridge, and throws the Rat Pack picture down into the water. Very cinematic. We've seen this before in a lot of movies. Important, We've seen this before in season one of this season product. Season one. Is this what you were going to say? No. Okay. I was not, but you're talking about the... Uh, Vic McKazian. Vin McKazian. Vin McKazian, sorry. Vin McKazian. Freudian slip. Potabingian slip. Sorry, I'm not trying to do that to you. Important <laughs> note. I've thought about it sometimes. <laughs> Important, that's for a different podcast. Important note, though, he's driving a Cadillac Escalade, not his Suburban. Yes. It's yes. a soft intro of the new car, the new whip. Well, eventually, it, this isn't his car for the rest of the series, but yeah. He's making a transition. They never they never discuss the um, him getting rid of the Suburban. The Suburban. Cut to Mazarone in the back of a truck with a five iron in his mouth. Why five? Why not a nine iron, Justin? I have, I have no idea, but... Perhaps season five? <laughs> That's... It was like, of all the irons, you know, drivers, woods, put a three wood in there, they picked a five iron. Do you think that was supposed to be like a rat in his mouth? It very much had the Jimmy Altieri vibes. Right. Cut to Curto, Anxious, talking to Grasso about money. Interfere on for his son's MS. I looked up the price on that. Street price on that is no joke. So okay. It's expensive. Guy needs money. Cut to AIDS talking to San Severino in the rain. She tells her about her friend Tina. Ripping off her boss. She's a bookkeeper for a furniture wholesaler. She makes up vendors, but writes them real checks. And her father cashes them. Her name, we learn finally from Adriana, flexing here. Tina Francesco. Her father's name is Victor. Aid goes for the kill and she knows what she's doing vis-a-vis her drag. I love this moment. So powerful. But is she still innocent here or has she gone to a point of no return? Do you give her a pass on this? I give her a, I give her a pass, personally. I just love the moment because it's like the, the Adriana character at this point has no power left, right? Yeah. She's got no power in her relationship. She has no power and no warmth in her relationship with San Severino and she takes this one little thing that she can do and uses it yeah I love it it's just this perfect moment of like this character grasping at the only power they have left for me I saw this as problematic like she's not she's tainted there's a taint but it's not a bad thing it's just the beacon of innocence throughout the show flexes she adopts the mindset of the world Christopher comes from. And as pure as she is, it's now a part of her too. She's used it for her own gain. And I think it's leading down the path of this Stockholm Syndrome, right? Where the captive thinks that they can 
get into the head of their captor and they can become friends and partners and they can do stuff together very much like pussy right. and skip. Right, right. And I'm hoping it doesn't go down that road. We'll have to wait and see. Justin, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for doing it. You got to see firsthand what a pot of being outline looks like. So you know it's no joke. It's <laughs> You endured it. It's 17 it's, pages, single spaced. Um, this is all out of love. It comes across. I love the podcast and I'm happy that you had me here. This was wonderful. <laughs>